0: Welcome to the New York City Healing Collective, where we amplify insights from people doing work at the intersection of healing, wellness, and societal transformation. This is your host, Angela Costa. Let's dig in. Welcome, Wendy Fully Love, to today's episode. It's a pleasure and an honor to, to have you a conversation with Sister Mindy, a dear colleague and former professor of mine. Uh, Mindy has been a scholar in the public health field and has written extensively around social psychiatry, but also urban displacement, community development, community organizing, and it's just a wonderful colleague to have in my life and in my network. Uh, welcome, Mindy.
1: Thanks, Angel, for having me.
0: Yes. Bye so this is the first episode that i have since corona and the COVID 19 outbreak uh, unfolded so it's a unique episode and i kind of even even thought about having you as as like in a sense our first real guest <laughs> uh since the world has become anew um and one of the questions that i begin uh, a discussion with this how are you how are you staying grounded these days
1: that that is a top question uh because this is hard on on everybody, I think in the whole world yeah. the it's a part of it is that uh, I find that um it's quite a unique opportunity to live through something at the scale of this pandemic that's affecting the whole world at the same time. So, uh, yeah, I've, my colleagues in Italy, my colleagues in France, my colleagues in Germany, for example, my colleagues in Japan, are going through the same thing I'm going through, and it it's quite it's quite riveting to get to see how the world works in that in that way, in the sense of the ecology of disease. Um, so I'm quite fascinated, and so studying the pandemic helps me to stay grounded. Um, but also, you know, I've been in my house for five weeks now, maybe six weeks. It's irritating. My own cooking is irritating. So happily, my, my daughter, Molly, took pity on me and brought me somebody else's cooking. And I figured out how to order in those uh, big breakthroughs. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the so the issue of how am I supposed to handle when I get irritable, which is, comes and goes, but it's a struggle, right? It's whatever some people are depressed, some people are anxious, I, I get irritable. So then um, you know, I my personal uh practice is to try to recognize my feeling, not just blame the person who got on my last nerve mm. and um uh, try to breathe through it, settle down, let it go, forgive them for being so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> uh And uh, of course, as you know, I'm a huge admirer of Pollyanna and the glad game. Mm -hmm. So I try to find what is there. And even in that moment of this person being so irritating, what am I learning? What are they offering me? How are they teaching me to be a better person? What can I be glad about? So I I try to be very disciplined about that.
0: You know, there's so much uh, being produced now in terms of content I found your blog, Countdown to Main Street, to be really uh, grounding. So, so thank you for producing that. I'll actually share that in the episode description with folks to kind of uh, invite them to really check that out. Well, part of this episode was to invite you to talk about some of the things you write about uh, in that blog. And as as you said in your initial responses to my first question, like this, this new togetherness that that is happening right now globally, could you talk a little bit more about that, just briefly, in terms of what, what does that mean to you? This new togetherness.
1: It's a it's a really important question because uh, you know sort of everybody experiencing the however we're experiencing it. Obviously, we're not all experiencing it exactly alike. But having a, a pandemic where none of us, nobody in the whole world has immunity, we're, we're all at risk. Some of us have money and can protect ourselves better. Some of us can't protect ourselves at all. But but that doesn't change the fact that none of us has any immunity in our bodies.
2: Yeah.
1: And so the, so we are all moving through this moment of, of fear um, and risk. And it, it teaches us, a, it's taught me a lot of things um, about the, the sort of the, the fragility of the human condition. Mm. And, and related to that, I, I think it's really important that, so we're all at risk and, and we are really depending on each other. Because if, for example, if Texas lets everybody back to work and they have another outbreak and 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 the planes start flying
2: Mm
1: -hmm. the texans are coming to new york and that outbreak is coming to new york and we will have another outbreak
2: Mm.
1: and um if germany or australia has things under control but they let the new yorkers who've been infected by texas come they'll have another outbreak so And it's almost like the, the need to talk to each other, the need to study with each other, the, you know, how many doctors in Italy and how many doctors in the United States, for example, have been on the phone to doctors in Wuhan, China Mm. saying, what do you know? Mm. Somebody said the smartest person at the NIH knows less than the average doctor in Wuhan
2: Mm.
1: because they, they were in the, they were in it first. And they, very thoughtful about it they collected a lot of data they're thinking about their data um you know they sequenced the genome of the virus very rapidly and made it public so that everybody could work with it Mm -hmm. so uh so there are kinds of of like cooperation and learning from one another Mm -hmm. watching each other's epidemics that are going on um that are it's just extraordinary so You know, on the other hand, there's this sense: well, vulnerable people, African, you know, African Americans who are poor and have to go out to not to these essential jobs like being nurses or healthcare aides or cashiers in a grocery store, are are at risk. So we're not in it together. Mm -hmm. That that sort of people say, well, we're not in it together. Um, And so it it's holding that tension Mm -hmm. that that it is falling. On, this, on each of our societies, along all the social stratification, along all the f- lines of fracture that have always existed, mm. along which the resources flow up to the wealthiest people
2: mm.
1: and the troubles flow down to the poorest people. Think, for example, of how the big chains snatched all the money for the small businesses.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, it, just an extraordinary thing. How criminal was that? Mm. And they were allowed to do it so so we get to see the, the whole thing we get to see the ways in which we cooperate and we get to see the ways in which we trash the people with power trash those without so it it's quite a revelation that that to me is the new togetherness is the revelation of what an ecosystem is and how humans organize our relationships within it
0: hmm. yeah and i was thinking about uh your recent blog i uh, think uh kind of- Thinking about that Turkish poet, or the Turkish novelist, uh, to be exact, uh, writing about feelings of humility and solidarity. Um, And in light of that fragility that this moment is exposing, we need to be together. And as you said, you know, in the case of scientists and and, and epidemiologists talking to each other, but in the case of just you know folks like us, just connecting and, and building. Uh, solidarity in, in whatever way we can. I kind of want to honor your your last blog in regards to Dr. Uh, Aaron Beck's uh, contribution in terms of cognitive therapy. I like this idea of, like, we need, right now we need mass therapy. <laughs> You're right. Could you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Uh, well, I, I was really trying to make a contrast about in, in a way about this problem of being in it together and not being in it together mm-hmm. Dr. Aaron Beck identified what he called cognitive and behavioral therapy, which his point was that the way we think influences our emotions and our behavior they're they're linked
2: mm-hmm.
1: and if we can change our thinking, we can change our feelings mm-hmm. so specifically if if you can you know, break into a depressed person's view, you know, nobody likes me. You can break open that, what he called all or nothing thinking. Mm -hmm. It lifts the depression. Mm. Well, basically this idea that we can control our thinking uh, is the heart of Eleanor Porter's book, Pollyanna, Mm -hmm. published in the beginning of the 20th century. But basically people didn't take seriously what this woman put forward and put in the mouth of a of a girl Mm -hmm. they dismiss it they dismiss pollyanna as recklessly and and inappropriately optimistic
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um and so so i was really trying to make the contrast that you know the the white man medical doctors gets all this accolades deservedly it's a very important therapy But well, the women had pointed this out decades before mm-hmm. in a popular manner that helped generations of people have mm-hmm. a tool for managing their mental illness. So, so what we want rather is to say both of these people helped us understand yes. that in this universal moment of crisis, we have a tool which is easily employed by anybody. Mm-hmm. We can have mass therapy. Um, but, and it, all people have to learn to do is to look at the glass as half full as opposed to half empty. Mm-hmm. It's, and, and that, in a way, is the discipline. You just simply say, the water is to the midpoint. You have a choice. You call it half empty, it's going to make you feel worse. You call it half full, it's going to make you feel better. Your choice. You mm-hmm. can say to people, why don't you say it's half full? It's e- equally true.
0: Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate that, um, especially because I think there there ha- there has been a wave of oh, a few waves, obviously, when it comes to people people's thinking these days. On the one hand, this may be a time to be really productive and to to to, to engage in things that you may have not been able to do before, and then a lot of people have kind of um, if, if 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 they're not uh, consumed by the despair, um, have engaged in some kind of productivity per se Um, but there are some people who say that there's there's some toxicity there in terms of the uh, overemphasis on on positivity and productivity but I think what you're pointing to is something very different Uh, it's in terms of the Pollyanna and the glad game and seeing the glasses half full it's kind of a measured optimism or at least a, a measured groundedness of sorts would you say that?
1: I think actually optimism is the wrong word for it okay it is the reason it it's becomes disparaging
2: mm-hmm.
1: is it's a choice the, Pollyanna is a young girl who's an orphan who was taught the game by her father, who was a missionary, and mm-hmm. they depended depended on the church from which they had been sent on mission to give them what they needed and she wanted a doll. What came in the missionary barrel was a pair of crutches. Yes. And so this is a child who at that point was being raised by her father. Her mother had died. And so they're poor and she's lost her mother. Her father says to her, well, what can we be glad about this? And and she's a little kid. She's got crutches instead of a doll. She said, absolutely nothing. (laughs) He says, we can be glad we don't have to use them. (laughs) that's not optimism that's brutal reality right what they had was crutches they didn't have to use them and you could you could choose to be glad about that Mm -hmm. so it's it's the that reality is brutal but we get to look at any facet of it we want it has more than one facet
0: yes indeed indeed and
1: uh, and it's that the father this minister taught her creativity She's a young girl She's very impressed by this. So she takes it to heart. Mm -hmm. But then another tragedy happens to her. Her father dies and she's sent to live with her aunt Polly, who's very embittered and won't let her speak about her father. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you've studied adverse childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. popular aces. The aces are piling up on this little girl, Mm -hmm. right? She's lost both her parents. She's been sent from where she grew up to her Aunt Polly's house. She'd never met Aunt Polly before. And Aunt Polly is hard. Yeah. Won't cut her any slack and won't let her talk about her, forbids her to talk about her father who's just died. Mm. Imagine that, right? So the child could have fallen into despair. Mm. But she has been given this tool to creatively look at her environment and find what there is to be glad about. That's an extraordinary story.
0: Yeah, indeed it is, and it reminds me of uh, that kind of concept uh, of cognitive reframing, and and finding language to to name what's happening to you uh, in a given moment or in a given situation, and, and being able to kind of use that framing to just either redefine it or just get more clarity uh, on it. One of the one of the new normals is that as you heard earlier the the ambulances i mean in the bronx right now i'm in the i'm in the epicenter of the epicenter as i kind of jokingly said earlier um but i i'm daily reminded of of the vulnerability you speak of uh, in light of just at least four to five ambulances passing by every couple of hours and initially it, it 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 literally caused a physiological response um where I kind of either become hyper aware, hypersensitive, and, and now it's it's just a gentle reminder of that fragility you mentioned. And, and and sometimes I'll I'll hear I'll hear a siren, and I I think of a beloved a one who I care about, and I'll text them, or I'll think of a, a favorite book of mine in my bookshelf, and I'll just even if I don't open it, I just kind of maybe pull it to the side. Um, so that reframing. Um, in light of the conditions is, is major is major um i want to kind of take the opportunity to thank you publicly um i don't think i've ever having given a chance to to do this but i just appreciate you so much um especially for the work uh that that you have done uh, with the 400 years of inequality committee and i have been blessed to uh to to contribute uh to that process um, so I wanted to kind of get into a little bit uh, into thinking about this moment uh, and thinking about this 400 year legacy since the arrival of enslaved Africans to Jamestown in 1619. Uh, I know that uh, you 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 recognize that it is not news um, that for communities of color, especially African Americans, the COVID 19 outbreak has been devastating. That's not news. In fact, it just it just reveals the very conditions that were in the place already. Um, but could you tell us a little bit about this concept of weathering um, and how it connects to that kind of 400-year legacy?
1: The, the concept of weathering was proposed by Arlene Geronimus and her colleagues at the University of Michigan. And what they were interested in was the ways in which stress ages us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you have a lot of stress, you age faster, mm-hmm. and uh, there are other things as well so if you have a poor diet, you age faster if you don't get if you don't get sort of time to, for leisure, you age faster if you have to work too hard so factors in the lives of African Americans that are you know across the board, both because they're um, work we African Americans are working class people right for the most part we're not capitalists mm. and we tend to have the worst jobs and to be the last hired and the first fired. Mm. So, um, uh, so that's, that's part of it, uh, is that, is that you see in our lives, the crossroads of the oppression of capitalism and the oppression of racism. Mm. What I like to think of as American Jim Crow capitalism, that mm. they, they're always present. So it's both our our working conditions and the ways in which we're abused in the workplace and being African-American. So everybody who works under those conditions is having a difficult time, uh, we get a a double whammy. Mm. So the, and this causes our bodies to age more quickly. So African-Americans have more illnesses and die at a younger age than, for example, uh, uh, people in other groups. So so that's what her concept of weathering is that that this is about the the wearing out of the body at a at a more rapid pace.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's some aspects of of the wearing out of the body and they're trying to figure out which what, what whichever they are the weathering of the body and the this really harsh virus
2: mm-hmm.
1: intersect in a very deadly manner.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, of course, compounded by um, the fact that in in very poor communities, there's very poor health care. What's been interesting in this epidemic is that there's been a lot of discussion of the problems of inequality. I think more than I've seen in any other crisis, more honest discussion, and, and a lot of it. And as you know, in our project Four Hundred Years of Inequality, we were, were really trying to lift up that that the creation of the concept of inequality and the mm-hmm. imposition of inequality, which gets imposed on a lot of different people, um, as a as a foundation principle of the republic is one of the lasting and lingering consequences of, of slavery. The ideology of slavery was that mm-hmm. some people could be enslaved because they were inferior. This gets imposed on women, it gets imposed on sexual minorities, it gets imposed on religious minorities. And as you look around, you see, uh, for example, a huge proportion of the essential workers are women, and they're poorly paid. So people who are working in grocery stores are likely to be women. People who are home health aides are likely to be women. Nurses are women, largely. So many of the essential workers who are in these high-risk positions are women. You see this um, in the risk posed to the Hasidic Jewish community,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which, in in its reaction to the oppression of Jews and the Holocaust, retreated mm-hmm. um, but, and really just decided to be isolated from the larger society. But in that isolation, really has um, less access to the news. hmm um, and and a great devotion to their practices, which they see as protecting them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So so they're at risk. Um, and 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 so we see this over and over that inequality produces risk. Uh, another inequality that produces risk is the inequality of education.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so many many people in the South have act, not got good access to good education or scientific education. Um, and so, uh, so all of these inequalities, inequality and access to education among them create, you know, tell you where the virus is going to go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of want to pull out a thread, um, from the 400 Years of Inequality Project that I thought really resonated. Um. On the one hand, how the ideology that came comes out of um, slavery that reinforces and entrenches inequality, but that later on across you know four centuries produces an ecology of inequality. Um, and I wanted to kind of just say that I think that the, the COVID-19 outbreak in terms of how it's, expo- it's really exposed that ecology in ways that 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 maybe other public health uh, crises haven't, even though that's not necessarily true. But in terms of, as you said earlier, that you you've been able to see more coverage and more conversations around inequality in ways that you haven't seen before. So just kind of highlighting that, and then wanted to invite you to maybe talk a little bit about Reverend William Barber III and Brother Barber. One of the leaders of the Poor People's Campaign, and uh, you, there was this concept of the seven uh, kind of sins. Could you talk a little bit more about that? From
1: the beginning of the Four Hundred Years of Inequality project in 2016, we were imagining observances in 2019, and one that we thought was very important was what we called a solemn occasion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Was, this is a horrific history. This history of slavery and and it's uh, deadly legacy, and we wanted to have a moment where we just gathered in in honor of all the all the ancestors yeah. that had been trashed in that process, and we envisioned this uh, as happening at Riverside Church with Reverend Barber giving the homily. So mm-hmm. it was something we had always hoped would happen. Long negotiations with Riverside Church and Union Theological Seminary and Reverend Barber, but we did arrive at that day on October 20th, 2019. And Reverend Barber's homily uh, focused on what he called seven sins mm-hmm. the, the seven tools that the slaveholders used to justify slavery that you can see to this day. Mm. So, um, it was an extraordinary exposition of how it is that the creation of this concept of inequality becomes entangled
2: mm.
1: in, in our society so that its tentacles reach forward to now mm-hmm. and shape this pandemic. One of his concepts was evil economics. Mm. And I mentioned a little earlier, the Small Business Association, Small Business Administration has this program to give loans to small businesses. Mm. But the the banks are in charge of giving this out, and they, in some cases, wrote the applications for their wealthy clients and got mm. them in first, so that huge businesses got the money and not the small mom and pop shops, mm. and certainly not the small businesses uh, that operate on a cash basis and are led by minority, you know, entrepreneurs. Mm. So that's an example of evil economics, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know, political pathology was another one of the seven sins that he talked about. Um, and I think we see political pathology every day
2: mm-hmm. in this
1: in this, right the for example, having a president who says things that are not only untrue but but literally deadly mm-hmm. as advice to mm-hmm. people inject bleach Mm -hmm. uh, which one hopes nobody would do but on the other hand the president is saying it might work that's political pathology Mm -hmm. that that people let him say this that they broadcast it that it is out there for people to deal with as a as a concept that's political pathology and that's from this founding of the nation as a slave nation and all the Twists and turns that the ruling oligarchy took to impose slavery, this complete inhumane institution, mm. on the nation, mm. and those things are with us still.
0: Yes, yes, and I and I was there for that um, observance and homily with Reverend William Barber III, and I, it was it was powerful. I'll actually include that uh, speech and that video in the episode's description.
1: And I could just add that Robert Simber and I uh, did an an analysis of the pandemic using the seven sins, and and that's on my blog, so maybe you could link it to that too.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. I'll have to kind of go back into that. I kind of want to uh, end uh, part of this conversation uh, with that last notion of political pathology um, and some of the ways that that impacts uh, communities. Um, I came across this really interesting concept uh, that came out of uh, social psychology called epistemic trust. And I wanted to read to you just part of what that means. So social psychologists have suggested that epistemic trust, that is, trust in the authenticity and personal relevance of interpersonally transmitted knowledge. Epistemic trust enables social learning in ever-changing social and cultural context and allows individuals to benefit from their social environment. Epistemic trust allows the recipient of the information being conveyed to relax their natural epistemic vigilance, a vigilance that is self-protective and naturally occurring. The relaxation of epistemic vigilance allows us to accept what we are being told matters to us. So that's kind of like a broad kind of overview to a certain degree. But I I get the feeling that the ways in which the political pathology is unfolding is generating epistemic distrust, where some of the information that's coming from the sources of power we're supposed to rely on actually are, on the one hand, detrimental to our health and incorrect. Um, but there's something here for me is that because of the legacy of 400 years of inequality, that there has been epistemic mistrust in place for longer than this current moment. And I just kind of wanted to invite you to think with me around this idea of, of epistemic trust.
1: I think you're completely right. That There's epistemic mistrust from the beginning. Mm. Um, one of the things that that uh was very important to our project and to me personally uh in the uh, over the four years so far of the project has was has been really acknowledging that the arrival of africans in 1619 was intimately linked to the genocide of the native americans
2: mm-hmm.
1: so uh which i'd never thought about i mean they were coming over as slaves period But really they were coming over as slaves to work on plantations on land stolen from the native people, specifically Mm. the Powhatan nation. Mm. And the Powhatans fought for years before they were finally defeated and all of their land taken by the Europeans. So So both Africans coming over to be sold into slavery, poor whites who were in bondage and native people from the beginning were writing protests of what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they understood the brutal dehumanization they were experiencing, and so the, this whole system of you know, political pathology, evil economics, and the other five sins is meant to shut out that voice of protest. There's mm-hmm. a profound fracture. There's part of the of the country, the ruling oligarchy,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's promoting lies. And then the great mass of people who sometimes get caught up in the lies and sometimes see the truth.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: As Abraham Lincoln said, I think, the, one of the most profound things about this, which is you can fool all of the people some of the time. And you can fool some of the people all the time. But you can't fool all the people all the time. Mm-hmm. And and in a way, this epistemic distrust is at the heart of, of like, it. it, it we're, people in charge are trying to fool us.
2: Mm-hmm
1: they're trying to fool us all the time and they succeed with all of us. Some of the time with some of us all the time, Mm. but they don't succeed with all of us all the time. And and then that's the heart of it. It's another way of looking at it is my, my colleague Rod Wallace has written a lot about collective consciousness Mm. and what is the collective consciousness like in a fractured society? Mm. And one of the ways we looked at this, actually, was in this problem of epidemic response. Mm. That in a highly fractured society, the way the epidemic response unfolds is highly dysfunctional. Mm. Because it's not a unified, we're all in this together, let's get this done response. It's much more like, well, we have to get something done, but what can I get for my people? Mm how can i leave out your people it's mm-hmm. much more how can i replicate inequality than how do i save everybody mm-hmm. so it increases the danger many fold we've had many more deaths than we needed to have because of this fracture in our collective consciousness this this struggle that's going on internally in the nation but uh, you know a, a nation created on seven deadly sins
0: yes yes so thank you for that, and. Um kind of wanted to just close with just some reflections inviting you to reflect with me uh, because just like dr wallace talks about collective consciousness i've been kind of one of the places that i found a lot of hope uh, is in the work of scholars who have and just community leaders who have talked a lot about collective healing and uh specifically responding to intergenerational trauma, and finding the resilience uh, that can be transmitted through generations, that intergenerational um, transmission of resilience. Um, and uh, I, have, I have seen some amazing conversations with this one scholar from Germany, Dr. Uh, Thomas Hubble, talks a lot about collective healing. So this moment bringing us together mm-hmm. to, to to try to think about what it means to to find some coherence, some collective healing. So any kind of parting thoughts on that, uh, contributing to collective healing and collective consciousness? uh...
1: Well, collectives, as our collective in the United States can be injured Mm. and then they, they need to be restored. So collective recovery is a real thing that's different from individual healing. Mm. So as an individual i need to eat good good meals as a collective we need to make sure everybody eats mm-hmm. so the, so there're two different things and at different as the geographers say levels of scale both require our attention how's the individual doing how's the collective doing what's our ability to work together to think together what are we going to do about this epistemic distrust mm-hmm. how are we going to have a common language how are we going to get to the point where we care about everybody in our society? I like to go back to Pollyanna and the glad game. She arrives at her aunt Polly's house and aunt Polly won't talk to her basically, mm. but everybody else in town is glad to meet her because she's a, you know, good hearted little girl and everybody has problems. This one woman is is bed bound, can't really move around and she's very depressed and Pollyanna shows up and says, if I had hair like yours, I would never be depressed mm. and hangs some crystals in her window so that there are rainbows and opens the curtains to let some light in. And, and the woman starts to improve, but she basically goes around town and the, the cantankerous old guy who won't talk to anybody, the the doctor whose heart was broken by Polly, she makes friends with everybody and helps them all feel better. Mm. So basically, and by engaging with people to mm-hmm. say, let's look let's look for the good in this situation mm. A terrible situation let's look for the good in it what is good by doing that together the whole town feels better
2: mm-hmm. well Polly
1: Pollyanna falls and breaks her back mm. and at that point she's in bed she can't move she's very depressed uh, but the whole town comes to the door and says to Aunt Polly tell the little girl I'm playing the glad game Aunt Polly of course doesn't know what this is about because she's forbidden the child to talk to her mm-hmm. um but the whole town knows and the whole town is better because of polly pollyanna Aunt polly wises up at some point and gets with the program Mm. and and you know so things work out but it's that that we can help each other we can Mm -hmm. heal the rifts and lift spirits by asking each other let us look for the bright pieces of this Mm. what what are we learning what are we doing that will help us we are supposed to learn in this that we are fragile human beings Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and that the damage we're doing to the ecosystem can wipe us out if we don't wise up Mm -hmm. and straighten up so can we learn that lesson we're going to have to learn that together it's a huge lesson but it's a lesson of this moment and it's in our hands so that's the collective recovery we have to say okay we're not the great you know gods we like to think of ourselves as.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We're fragile people that can be taken out by a little tiny virus. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. We have a big moment here.
0: I know, I know. Well thank you so much uh for taking time to talk. Uh and I just leave with thinking about more about collective recovery, collective healing and the and kind of the collective fracturing that we are experiencing now. Uh thank you so much uh for joining us.
1: Yeah. Thanks.